<clears throat> well, I've told you that, that I'm convinced that the great theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. And I'm not alone in that. Theologians much smarter than me have affirmed that. But I can't see any other theme more dominant than the kingdom of God. And we're working with that idea. Big picture-wise, the great theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. As understood, as one person put it, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And as such, the kingdom of God goes through various stages, and I, I want to rehearse them with you. I'm going to allow you to talk back, okay? The first stage of the kingdom is in the Garden of Eden. There we have the, and they all begin with P. There we have in the Garden the pattern of the kingdom. That's the pattern. That's the one that we're going to return to eventually. Pattern. But then man sins, and we have the what kingdom? Perished kingdom. Come on, you're allowed to talk back. Then God zeroes in on a man, Abraham. and Much is given to him. Much is promised to him. There we have, oh, I just hinted, the what kingdom? The promised kingdom. Out of Abraham comes a great nation, Israel. And Israel forms the what kingdom? P -p -p Partial kingdom. But Israel fails as a kingdom. Israel fails, and we're beginning to see their failure now. And so men are raised up by God to address Israel and to forecast the future, and so we have the prophesied kingdom. Very good. We got one right. You're all going to fail, but you got one right. Prophesied kingdom. Then in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son, and with Jesus we have the present kingdom. It's here. It's here now. And as members of that present kingdom, we are part of the, well, the proclaimed kingdom. Now we're proclaiming the kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And eventually, you're all going to get this right. Eventually, we're going to have a perfect kingdom. All right. Eight stages of the kingdom. Okay, now where are we in our study as we march through the Bible? Well, we saw the pattern of the kingdom in Genesis. We saw the perished kingdom, Adam and Eve's sin, and they're banished from the garden. And then God zeroes in on this man, Abraham, and he gives promises to Abraham, the promised kingdom. He promised Abraham three things. He said, I will multiply you and make you a great nation. I will give you the land and eventually... The whole world will be blessed through you, Abraham. Where are we now? Well, the promise of the nation has been fulfilled. At Sinai, God entered into covenant with Israel, and they formally became a nation. Now, as to the land promise, that could have happened fairly quickly after they left Sinai, because God had promised them the land. But what happened? In their unbelief, they refused to go in. They were overcome with fear. And God caused that generation to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until they died. Deuteronomy is what is addressed to the people of Israel as they're at the uh, poise to go into the land after that generation has died off. Deuteronomy means second law. And Moses is reiterating the law to the people as now they're going in to take the land. But we saw that it's not just a mechanical repetition of the law in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching. Moses is pleading with the people. And he's giving them exhortations based on motivations, which was the subject of last week's last time sermon. Because God is the only living and true God. When you go into the land and confront these pagan nations, you are to have nothing to do with the idolatry of those nations. Rather, you are to smash, destroy, burn down, obliterate every image of a false god and every place of false worship. Because God has been so kind to you, he has sovereignly chosen you among all the nations of the world to be his people. He has powerfully delivered you out of Egypt by a mighty hand. And he has mercifully spared you so many times when you should have been wiped out in my anger. Because God has done all of that in the past. Therefore, you, Israel, are to fear the Lord and worship the Lord and love the Lord and serve the Lord with all your heart and with joy. And because 
God has promised to give you the land. And he promised, remember that phrase, that it may be well with you, that it may go well with you, because God wants it to go well with you if you follow his promises. Therefore, believe him. Unlike the generation that perished in the wilderness, you believe God and you take the land as he has given it to you. Now we come to the book of Joshua. And Joshua is all about the people of Israel taking the land. So the ball is moving forward. The plan of God is advancing with the book of Joshua. From becoming a nation, God is now going to fulfill that second promise, namely to give them the land. And as we survey this book, I want to focus our attention on the three main actors in this book, and they are the Lord, Joshua, and Israel. So let's focus first on the Lord. The Lord is clearly the predominant actor in the book of Joshua. And we might say, really, the Lord is the primary actor in the entire Bible, right? I mean, this is his word, and it's all about the unfolding of his plan of salvation. In that regard, by the way, I suggest as you read your Bible devotionally, which we all try to do, we're always looking for something to get out of it, right? One thing we should always look at or look for is what can I learn about God? from this passage. That's an application we should always be looking for. What does this passage of Scripture, wherever I'm reading Old or New Testament, what does this teach us about God, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit? We can have no higher thoughts than our thoughts of God. But what in particular is the focus concerning God in the book of Joshua? I want to point to three attributes of God that are highlighted in the book of Joshua. First, the Lord's faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. And the promise in view here is the promise he made to Abraham to give Abraham's people the land. Genesis 12, 1, go forth to the land which I will show you. Genesis 15, 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And the book of Joshua begins this way. Let me read the first six verses. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Pretty unmistakable, isn't it, that God is going to give them the land. The word land is used 102 times in the book of Joshua. The word inheritance comes up 50 times. The word, the Hebrew word gabul, sometimes translated boundary or territory or border, 84 times. And the word for casting lots or allotment, 26 times. The land is made a big deal of in the book of Joshua because God has promised to give it. Now, chapters 1 through 5 are all about passing through the Jordan to get into the land. And just as the Lord had opened the Red Sea for them to come out of Egypt, he miraculously opens parts of the River Jordan for them to go into the land. The Ark of the Covenant is to lead them and go first. And Joshua instructs that there's to be a distance of 2,000 cubits between the people and the ark. That's a over half a mile. Again, reminding us that God is awesomely holy, and you don't mess with God. You don't get too comfortable and close to this awesomely holy God, and so you maintain a distance. Twelve men, from one from each tribe, was told to take a rock, a stone, from the middle of the Jordan, and then they'll make a pile on the other side as a memorial to future generations. So that when their children ask, Dad, Mom, what's this pile of stones? They're going to say, oh, we got these from the, the middle of the Jordan River. The middle of the Jordan River. 
that happen? Well, God opened up the river, just like he opened up the sea. And it's a standing testimony to their miraculous crossing. So chapters 1 to 5, passing into the land. Chapters 6 to 12 of Joshua are occupied with taking the land. And in chapter 12, 9 to 24, there's a list of all the nations, all the city-states that they conquered. I'll just read a few of them in Joshua 12, just to give you the idea of the flow. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. From verse 9 all the way down to 24, all of the kings, all of the little city-states that Israel conquered once they came into the land. Then chapters 12 to 22 are occupied with dividing and apportioning the land. Each of the tribes got a chunk of the land, except the Levites. The Levites, you remember, were in charge of the tabernacle, so they weren't given a piece of land, but they were given 48 cities from the other um, tribes. There is also They also set up six cities of refuge, in the Old Testament, you may recall, a city of refuge was a place where someone could go if he killed someone unintentionally. There's premeditated murder because of hatred, but there's unintentional murder. If you're swinging an axe and the head flies off and hits your friend in the head and he dies, it's not murder in the first degree, that's a manslaughter. And there are cities of refuge where they could go for protection. And then chapters 23 and 24 are about Israel committing to serve the Lord in the land. Now, there's a beautiful summary of the Lord's faithfulness to give them the land in chapter 21, 43 to 45. Here is God's promise. We're looking at God's faithfulness to his promise. Listen to what it says. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. God was faithful to his promise to give them the land. But what's the significance of the land? The land is not an end in itself. It's a means to give them something else, namely rest. Listen as I read, read a few verses and see the connection between the land and rest. Chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. The Reubenites, 115, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh crossed before your brothers until the Lord gives you your brothers rest as he gives you, and they also possess the land, 21.44, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, 22.4, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, 23.1, now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side. The land was given that they might have rest, refreshment to their bodies and to their souls. And brothers and sisters, the theme of rest is a significant theme throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis 2, when after working for six days, what did the Lord do on the seventh day? He rested. And unlike the other days, it doesn't have morning and evening, right? The Lord rested in an open-ended way. The Lord rested on the seventh day. That becomes the basis of the fourth commandment given to Israel, fourth of the Ten Commandments. You, you shall rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. You shall rest from your labor, you and your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your sojourner. You're to have a day of rest because God worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh day. The idea of rest is then carried into this seventh day, Sabbath rest. We come to the New Testament and Jesus picks up on this theme of rest in a statement you will all recognize, Matthew 18, 11, 18, 28, I'm sorry. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's he talking about? Salvation rest. Rest from trying to 
earn salvation, rest from the guilt and burden of our sin, rest from being enslaved to the power of sin. It's salvation rest that Jesus promises. And many of us have entered that. But that's not where the idea of rest ends. I'm going to read a few verses from Hebrews 4, and we just have time to dip our toe into a very difficult passage. And I just dip our toe in it just to make a point. In Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, the writer says, He, God, again, fixes a day, a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he has been, sa has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now that's David in Psalm 95. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day of rest. So Joshua gives rest in the land of Canaan, but David is speaking of a rest. So the matter of rest didn't end with Joshua because David, years later, refers to it in Psalm 95. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, now listen to this. This is the verse I'm after. Let us, and he's talking to Christians, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You see, brothers and sisters, there is salvation rest in Jesus. Many of us have arrived at it. But there's a future rest. There's an ultimate rest. There's an eternal rest. And that's why Revelation 14, 13 can say, those who die in the Lord rest from their labors. And Genesis, or rather Revelation 21, talks about a time when the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven and there's no longer any tears or crying or death. They have passed away. So you see, there's a future rest. So what I'm saying is this promise of giving Israel the land and rest in the land becomes a type of salvation rest that is in Jesus and eternal rest that we all look forward to. So if we ask, what does that mean for us as New Covenant saints? We have not been promised a piece of real estate on the earth. Actually, we've been promised the entire New Earth. But the promise for us under the New Covenant is the salvation rest that is in Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. And if any of you here are listening to my voice, if you have not come to Jesus Christ for the full and free forgiveness of your sins, for, for the relief of the burden of the guilt, and the sense that your guilt deserves punishment, if you have not come to Jesus to be delivered from the, the ruling power of sin in your life, Jesus Christ is the only one who can give you rest. And he stands with open arms to any unbeliever and says, come to me. I will forgive your sins. I will change you. I will deliver you from the, the penalty of sin and now from the power of sin. But for those of us who have attained that rest, it's clear from Hebrews 4 that there yet remains a, a, a rest for the people of God. Let's be diligent to enter it. There's an eternal rest that awaits us when we die in the Lord and ultimately when Christ returns. Now, obviously, this brings up the subject of the Sabbath day. I'm not going to talk about that. I must say to you, as I've said to many of you, I am not crystal clear in my mind of the exact connection between the Old Covenant Sabbath and the New Testament Lord's Day. I've read many books, and I'm still not sure. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm certainly not anti-Sabbath, because we are still in these bodies, and we still need rest. And I think it's still God's pattern that we work six and rest one. And so you'll never find me talking against the Sabbath. What I am not going to tell you is exactly what you may or may not do on the Sunday, the Lord's Day, because I'm not clear from Scripture. But we need rest. We have rest in Christ. We need rest for our bodies, and we have an eternal rest to look forward to. So we see God's faithfulness to his promises. Second thing that jumps out at us from the book of Joshua is the Lord's sovereignty. We see it from other books, but God is in sovereign control of every person and everything. You see, they've been promised the land, but the land is not barren. It's occupied by nations 
pagan nations that are stronger than Israel. Israel is not a militaristic people. They're shepherds, right? They're not a warrior people. But they're told to go in and conquer these people that are stronger than they are. And those people aren't going to give up with a fight. How are those lands going to be conquered and possessed? Only by the sovereign power of God. And so in Deuteronomy 28.10, the Lord promised that if Israel obeyed, listen to this, all the peoples of the earth will be afraid of you. If you obey me as you go into this ominous, intimidating land, I'm going to make the people afraid of you. In Joshua 5.1, we read, Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. They were shaking in their boots. When spies were sent into the land, as they were, they come to the home of a woman by the name of Rahab, who is a prostitute, and she ends up believing in the Lord. But listen to what Rahab says as these spies come in and engage with her. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon, and Og, how you utterly destroyed them. So God fulfilled his promise. The people are terrified because of God sovereignly putting that fear in their hearts. One other example I need to mention is in, in Joshua 9, there was a group called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were living locally, and they were slated for extermination. But they too heard about what God had done for Israel. And so we read in Joshua 9, 9, then they, the Gibeonites, said to him, Joshua, your servants have come from a far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Now, they ended up tricking the Israelites. They pretended that they were from a far country. They came with old crusty bread and worn out sandals, and they got Israel to enter covenant with them so they wouldn't be destroyed. But they did that because they heard about the reputation that God's fighting for these people and we don't want to get wiped out. And so we see that God in his sovereignty instilled fear in the hearts of these Canaanite nations. But if you really want to see the sovereign power of God, it's most clearly illustrated in the way that the nations were actually conquered. Now, I think you all know the story of Jericho, right? The walls of Jericho fell down. How did that happen? They fell down, allowing the Israelites to go in, and as they were told by God, destroy every person and everything except a few items of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, which they were to keep to put into the Lord's treasury. How were they going to conquer this powerful, walled fortress? Here's the plan. I want you to walk around Jericho once for each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, you walk around seven times. And in the seventh time around, I want the priests to blow trumpets and the people to shout. That's the battle plan. Listen to Joshua 6, 16. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And in verse 20, so the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. That wasn't military power or strategy. That was a sovereign God allowing them, through the blowing of trumpets and the shouting of their voices, to bring these walls down. It wasn't the power of their decibels. And then, because they had entered into covenant with Gibeah, the Gibeonites, though they were deceived, they were obliged to protect them, just like we are. Why are we standing up for Israel, at least for now? Because Israel is one of our allies. And if an ally is attacked, it's like attacking us. And because Israel was in covenant with Gibeon, 
when Gibeah was attacked by a coalition of Amorite nations, listen to what God did. Chapter 10, beginning at verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, so Joshua's coming up against this, this uh, group of Amorite pagan nations who have attacked their ally, Gibeah, the Gibeonites, and it says, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Who won that battle? God. He fought from heaven. He threw hailstones on them and killed them. A few verses later, it's that well-known account where in response to Joshua's prayer, God made the sun stand still, gave them an extra day so that they could finish the battle. Clearly, it is God's power. In another battle against the northern cities, God tells Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at that time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And further it says, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them. As for their thinking, they're thinking we're going into battle to, to defeat Israel. God had hardened their hearts to make them willing to go to battle because it was God's plan to destroy them. So, friends, God fought for Israel. God was the warrior who fought for Israel. So not only do we see God's faithfulness to his promises in the book of Joshua, but we see God as in his sovereignty, his sovereign power on behalf of his people. Now, if we ask what application does that have for us as the new covenant people of God? Again, we're not armed with the sword going to physical military warfare as Christians. You may go as a Christian citizen, but that's not the job of the church. But are we engaged in a war? Are you engaged in spiritual warfare? If you're alive in Christ, you are. We have an enemy. The enemy is the world trying to press us into its mold. The enemy is our own remaining sin, the flesh of our hearts. And our enemy is a spiritual enemy, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here's the question. As God sovereignly fought for Israel in their battles against the Canaanite nations, how are we to unleash the sovereign power of God in our spiritual warfare? Paul gives us helpful insight in 2 Corinthians 10 where he says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We live according to the flesh. We're men and women. We, we have physical lives, but we don't war according to the flesh. He says, our weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What are these fortresses? What does he mean? Well, he goes on to speak of destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. What is the enemy we're fighting? We're fighting speculations. We're fighting things raised up against the knowledge of God. Well, where is the knowledge of God? What is the knowledge of God? It is everything he has revealed in his word. And what is everything raised up against the knowledge of God? Anything and everything that is contrary to his word. And so how do we do that? How do we tear down those speculations and those lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God? He tells us in the next phrase, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the warfare that we're engaged in is a war between truth and lies. And the truth of God is what we have in his word. The lie is anything contrary to the word of God. And if we are to unleash the sovereign power of God in our spiritual warfare, we need to be people of the book. That means you need to come under the teaching and preaching of the word of God in his church. 
It means you need to be feeding yourself personally and individually, daily upon the word of God. And it means that we are to wield the sword of the spirit, first of all, with one another. When you hear one of your brothers and sisters falling prey to a lie, we need to come alongside one another and speak the truth to counter that lie whether it be to correct or to encourage or to comfort or exhort or rebuke, we need to be bringing the truth to one another and countering the lies that our own hearts tell us and that the devil tells us. We sang Martin Luther's great hymn. He brought about a great reformation, restoring the truth of justification by faith alone against Roman heresy. You know what he attributed to? The word of God. He said, well, I drank Wittenberg beer. The word did it. And I'm privileged to travel quite a bit out to California and to visit that wonderful oasis, Grace Community Church, wonderful oasis in the midst of a barren wasteland of California. It's a wonderful place. Six, 7,000 people feeding on the word of God. And four years ago when... Um, MacArthur celebrated, they celebrated his 50th anniversary. He's now in his 54th of being in that church. There were banners all around the parking lot that said the work of the word. It's the word. No one believes it more deeply than John MacArthur. The word of God has saved these people and is sanctifying these people. And we need to be all about the word unashamedly in our day because lies abound. If you want to unleash the sovereign power of God, it needs to be through the word. And in winning the lost, how are we going to win the lost? What's going to unleash the sovereign power of God who alone can open the heart of a dead sinner? The gospel, unashamed, without the corners trimmed off of it. The gospel in full strength, being given in love to people who need it. And so God's sovereignty. Very More briefly, the Lord's grace is evident as well. In the book of Joshua, we've seen it throughout. In Joshua 24.2, I'll save some time here. Joshua 24.2, he's near the end of his life. He's giving his final speech. He's going to die soon at 110. In 24.2, he reminds them that Abraham was an idolater. Hey, Israel, your beginning was in idolatry. Your, your nation has come out of an idolater. In 24.3 and 4, he says, it was God who multiplied uh, Abraham's seed through Isaac and Jacob, and so you become a, a great nation. In 24, 5 to 7, he says, it was God who freed you out of Egypt. He goes on to say how it was God who gave into your hand the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites. And then he says this in 24, 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. But he's saying to Israel, Israel, it's all of grace. All of grace. You didn't plant these vineyards. You didn't even have to fight, in a sense. I have given you all of this. From giving you a man saved out of idolatry, multiplying them, delivering you mightily through the Red Sea out of Egypt, and then bringing you into this land to enjoy a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that you did not prepare. You didn't build it. You didn't labor for it. You didn't plan it. I gave it to you. What is that but grace? Not hard to apply that to ourselves as new covenant believers, is it? God has lavished the grace of God upon us. We, like Abraham, were all idolaters. It can be said of us, as it was said to the Thessalonians, how you turn to God from idols. Every one of us was an idolater. An idolater is one who loves, serves, and obeys something other than the true God. Every one of us was saved out of idolatry, right? And like Israel, we have been given things we didn't work for. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're justified. You know what that means? That when God looks at you, he sees a life that has been perfectly lived without sin. You didn't live that life. I didn't live that life, but someone lived it for us. When God looks at you, he sees a perfect righteousness that will allow you to get into heaven, but it's not your righteousness. God made him 
who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And through many trials, we've already come. Grace led us safe thus far, and grace will lead us to a new heavens and a new earth, one that we didn't plant, we didn't labor for. God prepared it for us. I go, Jesus said, to prepare a place for you. And just like he's given us a free salvation, free forgiveness, he's going to give us a free eternity. So that's what we learn of God, the Lord, in Joshua. Much more briefly, what do we learn about Joshua in the book of Joshua? Well, his name means Yahweh is salvation. It's from Yeho, God, the Lord, and Yasha, to save. And you probably know, but it's the same word name as Jesus. Jesus is Yeshua or Yahshua. Yahweh is salvation. The name Joshua appears 168 times in the book bearing his name. So you got to say that he's a primary actor in the book of Joshua. Let's note a few things briefly about the man, Joshua. First of all, his godly life. He was one of the, he was Moses' assistant in Sinai. And then he was one of the 12 spies that were sent into the land. But he, along with Caleb, gave the minority report, and it was a good report. The land is just like God said it was. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. God promised it. Let's go in and take it. And he almost got stoned for that. R.C. Sproul comments, 10 little men saw giants. Two great men of faith saw God. And Joshua was one of those two great men. He didn't see the giants in the land. He saw the God who's bigger than the giants and had promised to give it. Joshua was a godly man. He was commissioned to take over for Moses. Deuteronomy 31.3 says, Moses tells the people, look, I, I can't go into the land. God didn't allow me to, do, to go into the land. But Josh, quote, Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. In 31.23 of Deuteronomy, Moses commissions Joshua with these words, be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to give them, and I will be with you. In the 34.9, it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on them. And Mo Joshua continued, Joshua was in his life what he continuously called the people of Israel to be and to do. You're to love God. You're to fear God. You're to serve God with all of your heart, with joy. And Joshua lived what he told others to do, and he did so to the end of his days. That's why there are plaques hanging in many Christian homes with some of the last words of Joshua on them. I read from 24, 14, and 15. Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May every head of a household here be able, and every young man who will one day be the head of a household, be able to make that same declaration. But more importantly, not to say it, but to live it out in your lives and in the life of your home. Joshua was a good man. He was a godly man. But not only Joshua's godly life, but his kingly rule. He was not only a godly man personally, but he was a powerful man publicly. He was exalted to a place comparable to Moses. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And in chapter 4, verse 14, when they were crossing the Jordan, we read on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. He was a great man. He brought the word of God. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, 
You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the ark. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout. Joshua brought the word of God to the people. Joshua was God's instrument to strike down the enemy and to apportion the land. 23.4, Joshua says, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. Joshua was a great man. He was a mighty servant of the Lord, greatly used of God. Thomas Schreiner says, Joshua has a kingly role and anticipates the future kingship in Israel. And God obviously endorsed the king because in Deuteronomy 17, he gives the guidelines. If when you have a king, he just needs to be a man who reads the law and follows it so that God is the ultimate king. But God was not against kingship in Israel. But with the dying of Joshua, it's kind of an end of an age because as we're going to see in the book of Judges, there's no king in Israel. And everybody does what is right in his own eyes. There's anarchy because of the absence of a dominant godly leader, such as was Moses and Joshua. So he was not only a, a godly man, he had a kingly role in Israel. However, he's not the ultimate king or leader that is needed. Because I say briefly that Joshua had sinful flaws. On one occasion, when he's about to engage the battle with Jericho, this mysterious man appears to him in Joshua 5.13. Now it came about when Joshua was, was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No. Well, that's an ambiguous answer. No, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Remind you of something else? Moses at the burning bush. And many, including R.C. Sproul, believe that this was a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He's in the presence of deity, and he's on his face in worship, and he needs to take his sandals off. Why? Because as good and great a man as Joshua is, he's still an unholy man in the presence of holiness. And as Shriner says, he needed the grace and forgiveness of Yahweh, just like the rest of Israel. Two other occasions, I won't take the time to read, but um, in seven, chapter 7, when after Israel conquers Jericho so miraculously, they go into this little town of Ai, expecting this is going to be a, a, a cinch, and all of a sudden they get beaten back, and 36 of their men die, and Joshua's, what's up here? We took Josh, uh, Jericho, now Ai should have been a snap. It turns out that Achan had stolen some, some things. He violated the ban, and God was punishing them because of what Achan did, and Achan and his family was taken out in stone. But before Joshua knew that, he was actually complaining like the people of Israel. Oh, Lord, why did you lead us out of Egypt? And he's sounding like the people of Israel. Joshua was not a perfect man. And one other occasion in chapter 9, 14, and 15, when the Gibeonites came to trick the Israelites, it says they did not seek counsel from the Lord. Well, that included Joshua. All that to say, Joshua was a great man. He was a great leader. He was a brilliant general and tactician, a man who loved and feared and served Yahweh with all of his heart, all of his days, and he is an example to be followed. But also like Moses, he's not the great leader and king who is ultimately needed. The world will have to wait for another Joshua. And so when the angel came to Mary, she said, you shall call his name Jesus, Yahshua, Yahweh is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus does not give us victory over a piece of real estate. He came to give victory over sin, over Satan's kingdom, and over death itself. And if you have not yet come to Jesus, that greater Joshua, 
for salvation. He's the one, the only one you need to come to. Much more briefly, let's look at Israel. First of all, Israel has a duty to the, to the covenant to be strong, courageous, and obedient. God is still with Israel at this point. How do we know? Because he gave a successor to Moses. He gave them Joshua to lead them. Because the Ark of the Covenant is to go ahead of them through the, the Sea of the Jordan, representing God's presence. I'm still with you, symbolized by the Ark. Interesting. And then the Lord dries up the river, just like he dried up the sea. God is still with Israel. It's interesting to note that as they're ready to come into the land, Joshua has the people circumcised at Gilgal. And then he makes this statement in chapter 5, verse 9. Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What he's saying to Israel, you have a new identification now. Get rid of that mindset that you're slaves in Egypt. That reproach is gone. You're my people about to possess the land I am giving you. I'm rolling away the reproach. Don't think of yourself. We could go and apply that, can't we, as to how you're to think of yourself in Christ now. And the reproach is gone from your past sinful life, sins done by you and sins done against you. That reproach is rolled away in Christ. And they also celebrated the Passover there. And so their response, in light of what God's presence with them, is stated in 23, 6 to 8. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So Israel's duty to their covenant God, be faithful to the Lord, shun every form of idolatry. But then we have, and we're almost done here, Israel's declaration to obey. This is interesting. As they hear the call from Joshua to cling to the Lord, to avoid idolatry, to obey, serve the Lord, listen to the words of Israel in 24 16, I'll read 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Listen to their response. Verse 16. The people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, is he who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. And then in verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And again in verse 24, the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. Wow. What confident bravado. Don't have to worry about us, Joshua. We know what the Lord's done for us. We're going to serve the Lord. But the final point is Israel's destiny to fail. In this same discourse, Joshua says this in 24:19. He said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. And then listen to the closing words of Joshua. People are all talk. Listen to the closing words of Joshua the last three verses. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground in which, Jacob's, uh, which Jacob uh, had bought from the sons of Hamor and father Shechem for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's son. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Listen to what um, theologian Thomas Schreiner says about the close of the book of Joshua. He says, on the one hand, God had fulfilled his promises. Israel was in the land. Joseph's bones, just as he requested, were buried in Canaan, Genesis 50. The generation of Joshua continued to serve the Lord. On the other hand, the book ends with the death of Eleazar, suggesting that a new day was coming, a day when Israel would not be faithful 
to the Lord. And next week we will see that they were not. The book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes, and in a cyclical way, they fell again and again into idolatry. I close with this thought. Israel was all talk, but no walk. Israel was all profession, but no power, because there was no possession of spiritual life in most of them. Here's the difference again between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant does not give the power to do the will of God. The new covenant does. Because all who are children of the new covenant have the law written on their hearts, and they all know God. This is the mark of the new covenant believer. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. We are not those who talk but don't walk. We're not those who profess but have no power because we possess the life of God within us. And so a Christian is one, yes, who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead. But he's also one, or she is, who lives a life that is transformed by the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Romans 6.6, the old man has been crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 1 John 3.6, he who is born of God does not sin. Literally in the Greek present tense, he does not continue in a pattern of sin. He's never sinless, but we progress out of sin by the grace and power of God. In John 8, 34, 36, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Has the Son set you free? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truths we learned from the book of Joshua Help us to make application of them to this better covenant in which we live, the new covenant in which you not only command us, but you give us power to do. We thank you in Jesus' name.